Uh, hello, everyone. Um, my name is Jeffrey Jalot. Uh, I'm a junior, play basketball, and I'm a member of SWAG. And I don't mean fresh and the way you carry yourself and how you look, but I mean serving with all gifts. And we're a group that helps the community, and we uh, help with being role models to kids, whether it's uh, uh, making a basketball clinics and running basketball things like that. And I'm Daniel Butler. Um, I'm, a, I'm a senior sociology major and I am a member of the Black Student Union here on campus. <clears throat> and I want to welcome everyone here to our Black History Month convocation today. Thank you all for coming. Uh, today we will celebrate hit, uh, Black History by reflecting on the power and story of African American music. I'm pleased to introduce our guest speaker for this morning, Dr. Marvin Curtis. Dr. Curtis is the Dean for the Ernestine M. Rackland School of the Arts at Indiana University, South Bend. Dr. Curtis earned a Bachelor of Music degree from North Park College in Chicago, Illinois. His Master's of, his master's of Arts, excuse me, from the Presbyterian School of Christian Education and a doctorate from the University of the Pacific. Uh, Dean Curtis is the first African-American composer commissioned to write a choral work for a presidential inauguration. His work, The City on the Hill, was premiered at the President Clinton's 1993 inauguration. He has led numerous workshops in African-American music and multicultural and education, and has been guest conductor for numerous choral festivals around the country and has written in many scholarly journals. We're excited to hear from Dr. Curtis today. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Marvin Curtis. Good morning. Thank you for your invitation and for your warm welcome and for the wonderful music that I heard when I came in. Uh, this morning, I'm going to talk a little bit about a, a, large, a large subject, which is African-American music. You cannot do it in just 30 minutes or 20 minutes. It takes several courses and several years. There are books written everywhere about it. And as the scholarship has changed, so has the view of where this music has come from. <clears throat> so this morning, I'm going to ask you guys to also join in some of the singing as I tell some of the stories behind this music of this great people. But first, a little bit of history, which is very important to that you need to understand in, as we talk about where this music came from. The history of African-American music is encapsulated in the idea of two things, getting back home and keeping the faith. The idea of going back home can be found in the music and the actions of this people. History tells us that from 1450, when slavery was established, until 1900, some 11 million Africans were brought to North America, South America, and the Caribbean as slaves. 11 million people, the size of several cities. <clears throat> 10 to 14% of those Africans died en route to the slave coast. 6 to 10% died at the point of departure. And 15 to 20% died aboard ship. If you've ever seen the movie Amistad, you will see how slaves, Africans were treated on board that ship as they were tossed overboard if the ship weighed too much. The first enslaved Africans arrived as what we now know as South Carolina in the year 1526. Of those that followed, the overwhelming number were under 30, 
The greatest percentage, some four and a half million out of eight million, were young males between the ages of 14 and 30. By the time of the first U.S. Census in 1790, there were 697,000 Africans in a population of America of four million whites. By 1860, there were almost four million enslaved Africans in America. It needs to be remembered, however, that Africans were only counted as three-fifths of a man, according to the U.S. Constitution, for congressional representation, so there may have been many more. <clears throat> Contrary to Hollywood, Africans were not in love with Miss Scarlet from Gone with the Wind or Betty Davis and Jezebel. The enslaved African was not in love with their white master. Living conditions were less than stellar with wooden cottages, with little heat or cooling, wooden floors, if they had floors at all, outhouses, and leftovers from the food from the big house to eat. Enslaved Africans were used as a commodity, bought and sold at the master's will without the respect of families. In fact, families' weddings were not respected at all. Families were sold away from each other at the slave auction upon their arrival, mother, father from each other, sister, brother from each other. Many, many would never see their biological fathers or families again. The plantation was no safer. There was always the dread in the mind of a mother or father that their children would be sold to some other plantation at the whim of the master or for a minor infraction. The enslaved African was not treated as a human being, but as a piece of property, without any thought to their personal feelings. For being a slave, they were supposed to have none. White masters understood that to keep the slave population at rest, it was important to separate Africans from the communities they were used to, that dealt, and they, so they dealt that through their language and culture. Therefore, Africans of different nationalities with different languages were placed together. So you never had on a, on a plantation many people of the same nationality. And we must remember that Afri West Africa was a part of the slave trade that was most affected into America. It was not one country, it was several nations, as they called themselves, with different languages. So it was important for the slave masters to have different languages so they could not talk to each other and communicate with each other. Another part of, of the culture was drumming. As many of you know and probably have studied, drumming was a huge part of the African tradition. It was also a way of sending signals to each other through, through, that, uh, through, through drumming. Drumming was outlawed in America because a slave could then send a message to another plantation, to another plantation. And so drumming became outlawed in, in, in the region. And with this, with the drumming being outlawed and with the language barriers that were created, it was very difficult for the African to learn English. But they had no choice. They had to speak the master's language. And so they had to learn the language by ear. They had to listen to the slave masters, the overseers, who themselves were usually poor Irish with a poor command of the king's English. So the slave African was subject to learning the language by ear from people who themselves could not speak properly. However, there was one part of this that is commonly left out that as a choral director I've discovered over the years. 
In my trips to West Africa and in my studies, in the phonetic alphabet of West Africans, there is no th sound. There's no th sound as we have in English. And so the word this, that, those, them could not be enunciated by the Africans. However, in the African language, there is a hard D sound. So this became this, that became that, those became them, or those, and them became them. It was not illiteracy, it was phonetics. And so if you look at the music of the spiritual, you will see these con con contractions, these differences of words. And as a young man growing up in Chicago, singing these, this language, I was terrified by it. I thought it was because I was, these people were illiterate, and I was ashamed of that language. Until I discovered there was nothing to be ashamed about. Phonetics is different in different parts of the country. And so this, that, those, them, words like going became gwine, was not illiteracy, it was phonetics. And that part is never taught in school. I was taught that Africans had thick lips, thick tongues, and, were, and could not speak. Totally untrue. We may have thick lips, which is part of our heritage. We may have a thick tongue, but the language was a phonetic problem, brought on by the fact that you were taught a language under the rest of slavery by people who couldn't speak English themselves. Quite a contrast. Also within the African language is a rhythm. And so the language, if you hear an African speak, or somebody from the Caribbean speak, you'll hear this, what we call a sing-song type language. But it's the rhythm of the words which is inherent in the culture. This rhythm, this rhythm speak, as we, as we call it, or the toname, where a language or a word can be changed by the rhythm. Many of us in this room who have parents know that if they call you by your first name, that's one thing. They call you by your first and last name, it's another thing. They call you by all three names, you are truly in trouble. Same thing in the African language. The rhythm of the word would change the meaning of the word. Same way with T-O, T-O-O, and T-W-O. They're all two, but depending on how you say it and how you use it, it's different. And so the rhythm allowed the words to have different meanings, and, and the rhythm was also in sync with the speech patterns which later appear in music. It was in this atmosphere of slavery, of this de degradation of human life, of, of the human spirit, of people being sold from each other, of working under the, the most insane and inhuman conditions, that the masters decided that the best way to keep the slave docile was through Christianity. Not every master believed this was, this was gonna work for them, but in the end, it was decided that teaching from the Bible, slave obey your master, was going to be the best way to keep the Africans docile. But, the, but the, and the idea was that the African had no religion. They found these people in Africa, they enslaved them, and of course they spoke a different language and different customs, and so Christianity became the way of making them all the same. However, Africans already had a religion. They had a heritage of worshiping of one God. And as Kofi Apuku says, God was the Lord of the heavens and earth, the creator of the world and man, the giver of life, lights, and sufficiency. He is timeless and eternal. He's everywhere. He sees and hears all, but is himself invisible and cannot fully be known. He is also great and omnipotent. And this was the God of Africa. 
In the different nations of West Africa, God, God was routinely on the lips of the people. And I want to just say for you, quote for you a couple things, I think, to make my point. In the Yoruba tradition, the salute in the morning was, thank God. At night, the wishes expressed, may God wake us well. Among the Akan people, when an old man or old woman is asked, how are you? He or she will reply, by the grace of God, I am well. In bidding good night, Amende may be heard saying, may God guard you with his protective powers. In conversation, one often hears the name of God. When one experiencing difficulties in his affairs is asked how his affairs are progressing, an Akan will answer, the future is in the hands of God alone. The Yoruba also use the phrase, if God does it, when asked about the hopes for making profit as traders. What was more important was that the God of West Africa was not in a church or a building. He could not be defined by space. So the Akan people of Ghana would say, if you want to speak to God, speak to the wind. The concept of God also included the lesser deities. These deities inhabit the objects of nature, such as the rock, the river, and the tree. Everything on earth had a spirit. That spirit had to be acknowledged. There were stories of people who failed to acknowledge the spirit with an object without first asking permission of a particular spirit, and that object became unusable. When I was in Ghana, there was a story about a group of people that wanted to make a, a canoe out of a, a, a log. And in the tradition, and I saw this in West Africa, there was always a libation. People would gather around the object and pour wine and ask for blessing. The story goes that these people didn't do that and they drowned because the canoe sank. Whether it's true or not, I don't want to find out, but it was important to me to see this and to find and to see that this was a tradition that was carried on even when I was there, that before anything happened, they asked the objects for their permission to be used. Finally, there was a role for ancestors in the worship. If you lived a good life, your spirit lived on among the people. It was thought that ancestors had extra human powers and could intervene in the lives of a people. If one looks carefully at these three ideas of worship, it can be said that a trinity was established with God as the head, the lesser gods as his son, and the ancestors as the Holy Spirit, for they would be with you always. This concept was not contrary to the idea of colonial Christianity, with, with one huge exception. The God of Africa did not see slavery as white society did, and the African called on their God to free them and send them back home. When I was at uh, Mount Vernon in Washington, uh, D.C., on George Washington's plantation, there's a little part, little road, leading from the burial of George and Washington down to a monument that was erected by Howard University. It is a monument to the 240 slaves that George Washington had on his plantation, our first president. All the bodies are facing east towards the river, east towards home. And that was that concept of going back home. So from the biblical teachings thrust upon them, the enslaved African had to find a way to communicate with each other in such a way that used the one thing that, that was allowed 
and it was to, be, to use the religious teachings with their music. Music, dance, part of African culture, and through the seven-note Western scale, the African took their five-note pentatonic scale and worked it together to create what's called the blues note. In all of this singing and the tradition, there was another important factor in the mind of the African, and that was his folklore tradition. Africans use folklore to tell stories about each other and to tell stories to children to get them to understand their concepts. And folklore had a principle behind it. It was not just a story. It was a story that was to be seen. In Africa, you don't go to hear music. You go to see it. If you see a, 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 a black choir, they don't stand still, they move. Same thing with the folklore. Folklore began usually on a moonlit night with the folkteller coming in singing a song. Following that, there was a recant of the last story that they told. Music, dancing, then the storyteller would tell the story with the audience responding to the story itself, what we call a call and response. He would say something, and the audience would respond to that. Following that, there was more singing, and many times the story had an open ending that allowed the people gathered around to give their opinion as to how the story ended. When I looked at that concept and looked at the church, it's very similar in how we do worship. There's music, there's always a story, and then there's the, the, the conclusion with more to come the following week. The same kind of concept. There was one other thing in this whole realm that was very important that the Africans had in their folklore tradition. And it was a saying that I, I, I relish. You can sing about somebody what you cannot say to their face. You can sing about somebody what you cannot say to their face. So the African could sing about escaping in a way that the slave master would never know by using the stories of the Old Testament. These stories use the biblical characters of freedom to talk about their, their condition. Cheryl A. Kirk Duggan in her book, Exercising Evil, A Woman's Perspective on the Spiritual, points out, part of the slave community's agenda was celebration of or agony over protest and change. As they agonized over what to do, slaves championed black solidarity and black heroes. These valiant persons reminded those in bondage that just as God delivered the Hebrew children, there was an exodus in store for them. That they would escape and no deliverance. Deliverance was not only the responsibility of the slave community, but it was related to their praise of God, to communion, to their relationship to King Jesus, the mighty one, their conquering monarch. Their understanding of the divine and other ethics and moral responsibility pushed, to, pushed them to explore and talk about judgment, heaven, and hell. So we will find in the spiritual the characters of Joshua, Moses, Daniel, Samson, Ezekiel, Jacob, Jonah, and David. Geographical locations used for escape were prominent in these songs. The River Jordan, but Jesus was baptized was probably the Ohio River. When it once crossed into, you, you were into freedom. The young people were saying, wade in the water. Dogs cannot follow you if they're chasing you if you're in the water. They lose the scent. 
So when you wade in the water, you were able to escape from the slave master. Freedom land, um, Canaan land, another great analogy, became a substitute for Canada, which when you escaped to Canada was a freedom. Moses was not just a male, but probably Harriet Tubman who led the Underground Railroad. Daniel in the lion's den showed he could resist slavery and the fiery furnace and still triumph. Pharaoh was a slave master and the walls of slavery would someday fall down like the walls of Jericho. One could sit at the welcome table since blacks were not welcome where whites could sit and yet the whole world was in God's hand because it was God and not he, the slave owner, who was in control. I was pleased to find in your hymn book, which I want you to pull out for me real quick, hymn 546, which is not really a hymn, but it is a spiritual. Keep it in mind that African music has this rock rhythm to it, because it's a work song, which is part of what Africans did in their own country. There's this great song, Guide My Feet, While I Run This Race. Now, the race was not necessarily running around a track, but you can imagine what the race could have been in the mind of the African. You can sing it with me, uh, those of you that know it. Guide my feet while I run this race. Guide my feet while I run this race. Guide my feet while I run this race. For I don't want to run this race in vain. Hold my hand. Hold my hand while I run this race. Hold my hand while I run this just can't sit there and go. It's a little, it's a little rock. Ready? And verse three. Stand by me, Lord, while I run this race. Stand by me, Lord, while I run this race. Stand future, you just can't sit, you have to move. That's part of that tradition. 
Howard Thurman talks about slavery and music in this fashion. The slave had often heard about his master's ministers talk about heaven. Heaven, in this sense, meant for the slave, freedom, the final abode of the righteous. Naturally, the master regarded himself as fitting into this category. On the other hand, the slave knew that he too was going to heaven. He reasoned there must be two heavens. No, this cannot be true, because there's only one God. God cannot possibly be divided this way. I have it. I'm having my hell now. When I die, I shall have my heaven. My master is having his heaven now, and when he dies, he will have his hell. So the next day, chopping cotton beneath a torrid sky, the slave said to his mate, I got shoes, you got shoes, all God's children got shoes. When I get to heaven, gonna put on my shoes, gonna shout all over God's heaven. Then looking up at the big house where the master lived, he said, everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. Heaven, heaven, gonna shout all over God's heaven. So there was this dichotomy where the slave saw, aha, you go get yours in the end, basically. And of course, we know shoes for the slave was a precious commodity and something that the slave African did not have. Just because you owned shoes as the slave master did, did not guarantee you were going to heaven. In fact, in the mind of the slave, they, not the master, were going to control the land of milk and honey. And I can go on and on and on and on and on about this subject, but I'm going to move on to what happened after the Civil War, and a new song was created by the newly freed and yet still discriminated African Americans. While there were predecessors in the year 1895, the largest of these, the Church of God in Christ, was founded in Tennessee. Their mission was based on Acts, second chapter, fourth verse, the congregations receiving the gifts of the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues. This movement was tied in with the movement of African-Americans from the South to the North. Emancipation brought about another problem, was what to do with the enslaved Africans after, after slavery. Many of them became sharecroppers and were still sort of enslaved, and one little thing happened that caused migration to the North, called the Bow Weevil, which destroyed 90% of the cotton crop in 1871. And so from that time until 1910, there was a migration of African Americans to urban settings, and that population grew from 16% to 27% by 1910. Literacy among African Americans rose from 18% to 69% during the same period. Within 10 years, between 1910 and 1920, the African American population in New York grew by 66%. In Philadelphia, 59%. In Chicago, 148%, and in Detroit, 661%. Why jobs? The community composed Song of the Spiritual was no longer the norm, and the new song had to be created to reflect the racial problems faced by African Americans. From this came gospel music, replacing the we of the spiritual. And you notice in this, the lyric of the spiritual talks about the community. The gospel talks about I, a personal relationship with God. It combined the sounds of the blues that was rejected by the church 
as the devil's music. But the idea was that gospel represented good news. And that became the song that spoke of one's personal relationship with God. In your hymn book, page 558, you will see a, a song by one of the great early gospel hymn writers, Charles Albertelli from Philadelphia, whose church still stands in Philadelphia to this day. You notice the, the words, when the storms of life are raging, stand by me. When the storms of life are raging, stand by me. When the world is tossing me like a ship upon the sea, thou who rulest wind and water, stand by me. No longer the we side, side it's, it's the we, it's the I. In the midst of tribulation, stand by me. In the midst of tribulation, stand by me. When the host of hell assail and my strength begins to fail, thou who never lost a battle, stand by me. One of my favorites is in your other book. It's the um, Sing the Story. And on page 72, one of Charles Albertini's famous, most famous hymns, By and By, When the Morning Comes. And the music is upbeat. First of all, there is now music. But the spiritual was not written down, this is. We are often tossed and driven by the restless sea of time, summer skies and howling tempest, off a seed of bright sunshine. In the land of perfect day, when the mists have rolled away, we will understand it better by and by. One of the classic examples of this music comes from Thomas Dorsey in his classic, Precious Lord, Take My Hand, which is also in your hymn book on page 575. The words are classic. It's a story of his own feelings about his wife and child dying at the same time. But you will see again those words, Precious Lord, Take My Hand, Lead me on, let me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord, lead me home. While the spiritual was unaccompanied, now the gospel used pianos, guitars, organ, little full ensembles. Its lyrics reflected the things that mattered most to poor people, staying alive, healthy, and financially solvent. In the end, it was the desire to return to one's homeland that created the spiritual, and it was the desire to stay alive in this land that created the gospel. Aretha Franklin's father, the late C.L. Franklin, said that gospel and spirituals should mend the broken heart, raise the bowed head, and give hope to the weary traveler. This is music that helped build a community through encouragement, prodding, and sustaining. Albert Goodson says the spiritual and gospel have become a procession for the hopes and dreams of mankind. And yes, we have come this far by faith. Thank you very much. Let us thank Dr. Curtis again, please. Thank you.
Hi, my name is Batsara and I'm a BSU leader. Um, I wanted to invite you all to a BSU happy hour on the 21st of February from 3.30 to 5 at Java Junction to celebrate African American and African heritage through the arts. All right. um, I guess now, if you guys want to come back, and we'll be dismissing, I guess, with you. Uh, so, after they sing one more song, we'll, or it's the same song, I'm sorry. We will be dismissed afterward. Thank you. <laughs>